the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So we want to build up each one of those links to have a strong chain. Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Marcy, your interview with Woodard Lett is particularly interesting because it's the first interview that we've done with a person from a religious organization. And the issues that he raises about leadership from a religious perspective are applicable to social justice leaders as well. I thought it would be really interesting to bring uh, Willard in as a guest on Be Change. Uh, in part, I met him many years ago when we both got our master's in the Community Economic Development Program at New Hampshire College, and he worked there for many years after, so interacted with a lot of incredible social justice leaders, so I knew there'd be a lot of lessons there. But also it was his roles after that that I thought were really interesting. One is he was the president for a number of years of the NAACP in New Hampshire, the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, and that uh, he's got some really interesting stories there. But also, most recently, in his role as a leader in the Unitarian Universalist Association of New England, and the process that that group went through to identify a group of practices uh, bringing together their congregation to think through what they all aspire to and what they all want to work together on as budding leaders in communities. Both the process and the actual outcome that they came up with was particularly interesting. And while he didn't have time to go through every single principle in detail, we include a document that describes that in more detail in our episode description. So I think we'll all really learn a lot from this discussion. Let, thank you so much for coming today. It's great to have you on the Be Change podcast. Maybe start with the work you're doing right now. Thank you, Marcy, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, right now, I'm working with the Unitarian Universalist Association as a regional lead in traditional Protestant religious polity. My position would be uh, considered a bishop, but it's a liberal religious tradition, so they don't, you know, have bishops. However, the work that I do is I end up supervising a staff of about nine people who serve the congregations of New England. We have both a pastoral role in serving congregations as well as a prophetic role. And our pastoral role is to serve, to meet the felt needs of congregations and help them be their best self. You know, they identify stuff. Maybe there's a newly elected board treasurer, lay leader who doesn't know how to read financial statements, you know, we'll come in. We do private events where we do coaching in response to requests from congregations and congregational leaders. And as well as we do what we call companioning, where my staff shows up for opportunities of both of celebration, there's an ordination, there's an installation, as well as crisis. 
like uh, last year when they had the gas line explosion fiasco in Lawrence. That Sunday, I went to church there in Andover to be with that community to say, hey, you know, we, the Unitarian Universalist Association, are here if you need us. We claim Unitarian Universalism and the tradition, and it claims us as well. So we need to be aware of and acknowledge all those wonderful things about it, but at the same time, acknowledge and be aware of shortcomings that exist. Uh, the Unitarian Church and the Universalist Church were were two separate faith traditions that came out of the Congregationalist tradition of the Pilgrims and Puritans. And uh, in 1964, they combined to become the Unitarian Universalist Association. And as we look back on the tradition, one example is that Thomas Jefferson was a Unitarian. And he, most of us are familiar with him and the words he wrote with the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and, and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But he was also an enslaver. And he was alienating and denying African people those same rights, actually, in effect, removing them from under the cover of God. It's part of the tradition. We got to own the whole thing. And that's part of our prophetic challenge, to take this word forward. Also, the uh, Unitarian Universalist Association recently has made a commitment to uh, dismantle white supremacy culture within the faith tradition. This is part of our prophetic calling. And then uh, another part of that prophetic calling is connecting congregations to each other. Before we get um, more deeply into what you're doing now and some of the lessons from your prior work, we like to start with really understanding where the you, uh, as, as the person speaking today, came from and what was it about your formative years that led you down the path of the social justice work that you've done these many years? Well, I'll say that I was born and spent my early childhood in Mississippi, in Waynesboro, Mississippi. And it was an idyllic childhood where I was running around, playing in the woods. I left when I was five years old. So, I, you know, for me, that period in your life is pretty much where you're learning how to have fun or you're having fun, ideally. And uh, actually, my mother told me that when I was born, and it was a home birth, that uh, my great-grandmother, said that she thought I was going to be a minister. And as I'm telling you the story now, so I've, it's been, I've been carrying it with me and I find it uh, ironic or maybe even not necessarily ironic, but fortuitous that mm-hmm. I find myself in the place, in the role that I'm playing now. You know, I was just talking to somebody earlier today and I was telling them that we as human beings bring with us this bundle of experiences that are wonderful gifts that we have to bless the world with, but we also bring our brokenness. Everybody's got some kind of a thing that they have to deal with in their life at some point. And as a child, my mother remarried uh, when I was fairly young, uh, when I was five, and her husband, my stepfather, relocated the family to Chicago. And my uh, stepfather, he was uh, divorced. My mother was divorced. And my mother had like about six kids. And my stepfather, he was a custodial parent for his six kids. So my mother sent me to live with, with her sister, my aunt. And, you know, I felt that she had rejected me, actually. And I carried that with me until I was like in my late teens or something. 
And I had this, and I real at some point I realized it, wrote her a letter and everything. But that shaped who I am, I think, in a way that made me more emotionally intelligent. And so when I was 11 years old, I left my aunt's house. I ran away. I left my aunt's mm-hmm. house. And, you know, we, we were both in Chicago, traveled across the city, took a bus and and went to my mother's house. And she's like, what are you doing? It's like, hey, I want to come home. She's like, OK, well, you know, you can come home. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that really co- created a strain on the relationship between the two sisters and and it also did something for me at 11 because I made that decision to to sort of like take my life into my own hands. 11, I was smoking cigarettes. I started working, you know, and I was like a little adult from 11 on. And that kind of shaped how I engaged the world, which is I engaged the world rather than sort of, uh, you know, laid back. I was really engaged in working to make things happen rather than allowing things to happen to me. So that's kind of like what got me here. I really feel like all of us are molded at a very basic level early in our life. And that experience was significant for me. You know, one thing that that reminded me of is an expression actually that, that my husband Warren, who you, you've met, taught me, which is called post-traumatic growth. And uh, I had mentioned that he had had a stroke and our son just really kind of blossomed, not as though it was it was a positive thing for him, but mm-hmm. it really uh, caused him to become independent and, mm-hmm. and it shaped him in a great, in significantly. And it sounds like you had a similar experience. You know, there's a, a West African saying, sort of the West African culture is very different from European culture in that there's separation between the sacred and the secular. They're all part of the same thing. And there's this uh, uh, concept called standing at the crossroads, where when you make a decision, you, you know, each time you make a decision, you're standing at the crossroads and you got to decide, you know, do I go forward or do I turn back? But yeah, yeah, that's important. Can you talk about those spiritual leadership practices, in particular, how you engage the congregations in both addressing the outside world with mm-hmm. with these really significant challenges that we're facing and at the same time not become overwhelmed by them. Within uh, the New England region, we developed this framework called spiritual leadership that talks about a, a bundle of practices that allow leaders to be centered and self-differentiated and engaged, introducing them to practices that could provide them with the skills that could avoid burnout and could help them be responsive and receptive to new or different ideas. Uh, Let me name the five uh, spiritual practices that are part of spiritual leadership. They are, as I mentioned, lifting up in gifts. Lifting up in gifts, which meaning acknowledging that, you know, everybody brings a gift. Everybody has worth and value in some way and helping both recognizing your own gift that you have which, with which you can bless the world as well as working to help others and support others. Uh, binding to tradition, recognizing and acknowledging both the the beauty and the brokenness of the tradition that you're in. Also uh, covenant. Covenanting is a process of making a promise about how you will behave, how you will live together and be together. And uh, there is a poem by uh, an Islamic Sufi poet, Rumi, 
who talks about though you've broken your your vows a thousand times, come, come again, come. You know, we make vows and you know, and things happen, and we have the best of intentions. We do something called uh, risking faithfully, which is part of a cycle of information gathering. It's discernment, information gathering, decision making, evaluation. You know, and the evaluation feeds the information gathering again, and we go back into action. Praxis is another term for discernment, uh, risking faithfully, that's used in the uh, social action uh, arena. The inner work piece, and it's so, so, so important. What we actually end up doing is helping, working towards helping people reach their own insight and awareness. Those are the five practices Mm -hmm. that we share with congregations and congregants in congregations. And you practice spiritual leadership as part of a collective process. So we build our own individual capacity to be part of this larger collaborative process. You know, they say that the the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So we want to build up each one of those links to have a strong chain. You know, it really strikes me that those very practices are applicable for many other (laughs) social justice organizations. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, reflecting on your work, in the Community Economic Development Program, working with so many up-and-coming executive directors or leaders. Uh, If you were to take a few of those concepts and transfer them out of the Unitarian community, what do you think would be the most important or most valuable uh, takeaways for you? You know, I think the most important thing that can happen for people, based on my own experience and what I think was important for me, is the inner work. The inner work, being able to uh, be self-aware. And for me personally, I don't, in fact, Marcia, you and I were classmates uh, in grad school. And and as you noted, about six months after the graduation, I got a call from the school saying, hey, you want to come work here? You know, we're looking for somebody. And I ended up going back and I was there for a damn near 20 years. And one of the things that I did was develop a course called Faith-Based Community Economic Development. And one of the insights that I had while doing this work is I talk about institutions, particular faith-based institutions, having to choose between secular marketplace value, the, the, the values of the secular market and the values of the sacred mission, you know. And the reality is that the secular and the sacred aren't apart and separated. That's part of the culture that we live in that causes us to look at it that way, to, 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 to break apart sacred and secular. It's all the same, actually. The sacred is relegated to Sunday morning or, or, or Friday or Saturday or Friday night, whatever your tradition is for a time of contemplation. If you leave the learnings and the lessons there, then how limited is that? in terms of it being a tool for us living our life. Well, you, you know, you made me think, which you, you've done this entire conversation, about one of the themes of this podcast, which is also having our internal organization, the way that we carry out our mission, reflecting our values, and that so many social justice organizations, you know, are striving to do good work in the world, and yet internally 
are not either treating uh, their or themselves well or treating their staff well, and some of that that conflict that that you were just referring to. And I was interested in jumping to that example that you mentioned of, and you don't have to name any particular congregation, but where there's a conflict between the pastor, mm-hmm. the person, minister, the minister, mm-hmm. and the congregation. And I'm wondering uh, if you could share a little bit about how that played out in terms of the work that your staff needed to do in order to sort of bridge that gap. Yeah. Let me just say that I'm hesitant to kind of, there are so many different uh, examples of conflicts between uh, ministers and congregations or ministers and board presidents. There is many examples as our people. And the role of the uh, uh, of my staff is to look out for and care for the congregation, the collective whole. And sometimes, you know, that could mean that someone, it could be where the board president is being unreasonable, but for the sake of the congregation, the minister ends up leaving. It could be where the minister is being unreasonable and for the sake of the congregation. Usually it's fairly unlikely, but what we are trying to do is to preserve the congregation and the integrity uh, of the congregation. And that means making choices that are, one, healthy for the congregation and not elevating any individual uh, interest or concern above that caring for the whole, caring for the congregation. We try and hold that, you know. Ministers have a professional association, and through the professional association, they have people who can come and speak on their behalf called good officers. And generally, my staff, we're viewed as speaking on behalf of the lay leaders because we represent the congregation. But my view is that the congregation is the minister, the congregants, and, you know, it's all the, lead, all the elements of leadership, including staff. Sometimes there are conflicts between staff members and ministers. And the UUA, the Unitarian Universalist Association, adopted a uh, practice of policy governance a few years back where the minister supervises the staff, not the board. And the board, you know, takes care of making sure that the congregation stays on mission. And so that sometimes results in conflicts between the minister and staff. And sometimes we come in, we're called in to uh, mediate, you know, those situations. And depending on the nature of the relationship, a newly hired minister may be talking to staff members who have long-term relationships with board members. So it's the whole, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm trying to think of a quote that says something like, Happy families are like all the same, but sick families have their own particular dysfunction, you know. And uh, with congregations, there are in many ways a bundle of relationships similar to a, a family. And that could be any number of challenges. But the overall intent of our uh, staff is to maintain the integrity of the congregation. Great. I wanted to explore a little bit about your work at the NAACP. What was the focus of the work, and what were some of your experiences there? Yeah, I moved to uh, Manchester, New Hampshire from Chicago in the early 90s. And fairly soon after I arrived in 
Manchester, I sought out the NAACP and uh, I became aware that they existed and, and so sought out them and uh, began working with them and worked with them almost about 20 years before I was finally pressed into service as president, <laughs> despite my best efforts to not to. But, you know, I think that the and I'm so glad. Well, you know, I was very active with the organization, even in any in, in, in number of different positions prior to serving as president. And uh, it was really insightful because here in New Hampshire, there are only a few people. And in fact, uh, in New England, there are only a few chapters. And I was able to kind of really make an impact. I was able to be a big fish in a little pond. You know, one of the things that I think it's really important for people to think about the fact that the NAACP was, I believe it was founded in Boston. Oh. And uh, it's like something like 1909 or something like that. It was founded by a group of people, both European and African descent, men and women. And uh, the reason that it was founded was because of a sense that there was injustice being happening within uh, uh, within American society, and some of that has been lost over the years. And you know, I mean, I can point, I, I, I have a, I can point to a period in American history where, in the late '60s, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee began calling for, then calling for Black Power, and that created this dynamic that uh, resulted in people of African descent and people of European descent pretty much working separately. And that created the uh, perception that the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was an organization that was limited to or, or created for people of African descent when actually that wasn't the case. You know, it was created for people who believed in its mission, you know. And his mission was anti-discrimination, you know, based on race and, and, and that kind of stuff. Part of the catalyst for the formation of the NAACP in 1964 was the work of the publisher of the Union Leader newspaper, which is a statewide newspaper yeah. in New Hampshire. He had joined the White Citizens Council, uh, you know, the Southerners, in opposing integration. And uh, so they, uh, there were several folk in, in Manchester who formed the uh, Manchester branch of the NAACP, and it's, it's, it's operated continuously since then. Partly, I think, because I felt this uh, disaffection as a youth, then one of the things that I, and, and I'm also a middle child, I'm like number three out of like, you know, seven. I have this tendency of bringing people together. Yeah, and uh, so I did a lot of that as uh, uh, as the uh, president of Manchester NAACP. Given the big work that you were you were striving to achieve, you know, eliminating race and bringing people together from a leadership perspective as a leader in this organization, it sounded like uh, you were saying it was a multicultural organization. There's people from all different backgrounds coming together. And I'm going to wager a guess that there's probably a wide range of perspectives of what's going to have the biggest impact as this very important organization in a highly, you know, European descent region. And I'm wondering if you could share an example of 
uh, a leadership challenge that you faced and drawing upon some of your many, many lessons and experiences that you've, you've had over the years, how did you, how did you tackle it and overcome it? One of the, I think the biggest challenge that I had as president of the NAACP, it was a challenge of human nature. We live in a society that is a uh, industrial consumer society. So people want to consume their experience just like they consume their products. So people want to, they come to the NAACP. Oftentimes, people will come to the NAACP, both supporters as well as, and they will like stand back and say, oh, well, we want the NAACP to do this. Or we want the NAACP to do that. And my greatest challenge was saying, you are the NAACP. There is no NAACP without you. you know? And because of the, uh, the mythology around the NAACP and the high profile that it has had in some cases, people would think that I am being paid, that it's my job and that I'm being compensated for doing the work that I'm volunteering my time, talent, and treasure to support. And, and as a result, they would kind of like take this consumer sort of right. attitude and like not be willing. So the greatest challenge I had was to move people from being consumers to being creators. We've reached a point now with the professionalization of, of uh, these things that we are consumers rather than creators. No, that, that's, a, that's a great example. And again, this podcast is focused on building leadership capacity in social justice organizations and the issue of people coming and being your, uh, you being a service to them and you, as part of the organization, determining the, the future and the impact that you're going to have as opposed to having it come from the community, I think is, is very relevant for, for all social justice organizations and I'd be really interested to hear just one, you know, an example that you could think of where someone came in and they, they sort of expected that you would solve the problem. And through your engagement approach and your, what did you call it? The, the possibility thinking, yeah. the possibility thinking process you went through. What's just an example of something that you feel proud of in terms of this person engaged in having an impact in the community? There were several instances where uh, people have came to the NAACP to complain about how school administrators in either high school or even elementary school or teachers in high school or elementary school in the Manchester public school system were treating either them, you know, the children, the parents. We would often, uh, you know, go and we talk to the superintendent, we talk to the principals. A couple of times we filed cases with the Department of Education and usually to limited to no impact. And the Department of Education, through its regular process of reviewing statistics, noticed that within Manchester uh, advanced placement, students from marginalized communities were practically absent from advanced placement courses. And so we worked with the uh, other groups in the community and the uh, school superintendent to develop a plan to address that issue. And that was probably back in 2013, and that initiative is still going. Part of what we did was we worked with the uh, school 
board, school district actually, to develop a action plan to address the lack of uh, students from marginalized communities and advanced placement uh, courses. Some of what happened, and it's still a work in progress, but there were a number of different features of uh, the uh, remediation plan. One was to provide, uh, one of the challenges for advanced placement was that the PSAT test, there was a charge for it. You know, and some families weren't able to pay for the PSAT test. The second thing was that the school, particularly in high, and I'm talking about high school now, the high school guidance counselors were the ones who referred students to take the test. So they made their own determination of whether they thought this student was college material or not. And based on that, they referred them or not. Also, there was discussion about the fact that many of the students weren't uh, prepared for advanced placement work. So the remediation plan, with input from the NAACP, I know that we made a lot of suggestions that were incorporated, but one of the uh, commitments that the school district uh, made was to strengthen the elementary school curriculum so that students, all students, would be better prepared to succeed in high school. We were also, the school district made a commitment to send the guidance counselors to a training that was designed to open them up to different ways of evaluating students so that their, uh, you know, limited experience and prejudices wouldn't be the only thing that they would be taking into consideration in dealing with uh, the students. In terms of the students being able to take the PSAT, which resulted in their placement in advanced courses, all students were given the opportunity to, you know, take the test. And if the student kind of like had reduced lunch, they, they would show that they had some kind of financial difficulty, then the school district paid their uh, PSAT fees. And so, you know, there has been some, some progress. Uh, there's still work that needs to be done and that is being done. But that was a, uh, I consider that a, a success. NAACP pulled together uh, the school district administration, school board members. There was a organizing group called the Granite State Organizing Project, which is part of the Merrimack Valley Organizing Project. Uh, I mentioned that because somebody was made with. And uh, we worked together to have develop a, uh, we set up uh, regular meetings with the school district so we could monitor you know, the work that they were doing and have the opportunity to, you know, give input. Yeah. As well as uh, provide them, the school district, with the opportunity to have access to many of the, uh, the families and communities that we worked with. I've heard a lot of similar themes throughout your experiences, themes of bringing people together, of finding possibilities of, of really, you know, a phrase that we use is strength spotting, but really focusing on people's strengths, self-reflection. And I'm wondering if there are other takeaways that you would impart on uh, our listeners. I would really want to raise up, to lift up this idea of gifts, this idea of being uh, creators as opposed to consumers, working to be balanced internally, both physically in terms of being healthy, emotionally in terms of being resilient and self-differentiated.
Fantastic. I, I have one last question. Can you explain a little bit more? You've used the term self-differentiated. Can you yeah. explain that for, for lay people like myself? <laughs> yeah. This idea embodied in the old saying about somebody else's lack of planning is not your emergency. Mm. It means that, you know, we need to be able to recognize the boundary between ourselves and others as a way of allowing us to maintain what's called a non-ancient presence. Mm -hmm. Somebody else is upset. You don't have to become upset. Mm -hmm. Undifferentiated is a mob where, you know, this emotion sweeps through the crowd and everybody's caught up in it, you know, but being able to step back and to, it's part of being reflective. You know, part of self-differentiation is being reflective and kind of thinking about, uh, you know, what's going on. When I was, uh, uh, this is a story that I was, don't necessarily tell a lot. And this happened prior to I went to grad school, actually. At one point in my life, I was paranoid. Meaning that I would walk down the street and the car would go past me and I would think, oh yeah, they're watching me. The car would go down the street, and then another car would cross on the cross street. I was like, oh, yeah, they've timed the car so that they can keep their eyes on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was actually, I was literally paranoid and thought people were following me. I, it was so bad that I was finally sent to a psych mm-hmm. for evaluation. And I took some kind of a multiple choice thing. He looked at it, and he said, do you think people are following you? And it was at that point that I realized that I thought people that I thought people were following me. Mm. Up until then, I knew people were following me. And once that happened, I mean, you know, once that happened, it it caused me to to want to be more reflective. And it was at that point that I realized I thought my mother didn't like me Mm -hmm. because I was sent to live with my aunt, you know, and I started like doing this, doing the inner work, this Mm -hmm. personal inventory. So self-differentiation is being able to Make the distinction between you mm. and the environment around you. There's, I think, Rudyard Kipling uh, wrote a poem that says something that talks about self differentiation. Oh. It says something like, when the people around you are, you know, falling apart and everybody's like all upset, and and you'll be able to maintain your composure, then you'll become a man. It's a fairly, huh. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a fairly, you know, well-known poem. Huh. Not so, it's an older poem. I, I... So I, I have to say that, that's, you, you know, your your addition at the end sort of got me thinking um, in terms of it being a little, potentially a little bit of a d- double-edged sword. Uh, an earlier leader that, that we spoke with was speaking about some of the challenges she was talking with women of color in particular Mm -hmm. about their needing to leave their emotions at the door Mm -hmm. in order to be taken seriously and exploring and struggling with feeling like they had certain things they wanted to express, but needed to control it to be, to be cool. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you deal with that sort of double-edged sword? First, I'll just say my intent in talking about self-differentiation is not so much saying you deny your emotions, but that you don't allow others' emotion. And because part of that same thing, when we talk about uh, the experience of, of uh, women of color, the need for self-differentiation is to say that, hey, because they feel that way about me, I shouldn't necessarily... That doesn't mean that that's, you know, because they feel like me being passionate is being over emotional and negative, you know, that they gotta carry that. 
I don't have to care. I don't have to decide that, oh, well, me being passionate means I'm over emotional. So I'm going to adopt their definition of me. So that's the, that would be the distinction mm-hmm. that I would try and make. Great. Thank you so much for, for bringing your gifts to our listeners and to me personally. Oh, you're so welcome, Marcy. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.